Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe because, as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than praise from God. Then Jesus cried out, whoever believes in me, does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. If anyone hears my words, but does not keep them, I do not judge that person, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be here and I am... I do feel very privileged that you are willing to listen to me when I preach to you, so thanks. <laughs> um, I also realise that I often start my sermons with questions, but it's because this is meant to be an active thing in some sense. You're not meant to just let it wash over you, but hopefully you'll engage with what's being said and think about how it applies to you. And so my question to start this morning is um, whether you've ever found yourself in a conversation where you're trying to convince someone of what you believe and perhaps you have been the expert in that conversation. So you've been the one that's had kind of the facts in that conversation, um, you're well-educated in that area. Despite everything that you say to them, that person refuses to believe you. Maybe that's a position you've found yourself in, one that you can relate to. I imagine that we've all been in that position before, but I think we've also probably all been the denier in those types of conversations. We've probably all found ourselves at times listening to people who are giving us very good evidence and just being resistant to accepting what they have to say. And in recent times, uh, various political and social trends have prompted scholars to sort of spend time looking into what it is about humans that makes us deny or, you know, refuse to believe the evidence. Trends like um, Trump's presidency or, you know, um, climate change deniers or COVID deniers. There's lots of evidence to support these things and yet so many people refuse to believe that evidence. So what is it that makes humans persist in believing, I mean, living lives that, that kind of refuse to believe the evidence that's there? Well, one professor of philosophy, Anthony Barden, has suggested that our sense of identity is kind of at the heart of this behaviour. So he suggests that a person's sense of self is intimately tied up with their identity group's beliefs and status. 
So because of our identity group, who we associate with, we have this tendency to respond automatically and defensively and also to choose to listen to the experts that we like but to reject the advice or the experts that we don't like. Um, and so in other words, it's basically this idea that when our worldview is threatened or when somebody's offering us information that doesn't easily fit in our understanding, then we are particularly prone to rejecting that evidence because it's threatening to our sense of identity or our sense of self. So the reason that I'm raising this is not to make us all feel bad, um, but actually because I think that this human tendency is one that we see in John's passage today. So it starts by saying that despite the evidence, the Jews have refused to believe. And the evidence that John is talking about is all the signs that Jesus has been doing amongst them. So the Jews have seen Jesus turn water into wine. They've seen him heal the official's son. They've seen him heal the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. He's fed 5,000 people with just five loaves of bread and two fish. He's walked on water. He's healed a man born blind and he's even raised Lazarus from the dead. These are phenomenal signs that Jesus has done. He has shown power over nature, over food, over sickness, even over death, and yet they refuse to believe what he says. Despite performing so many signs in their presence, many did not believe Jesus. So the Jews' disbelief isn't for lack of evidence. And at least part of their reason for not believing Jesus, I think, is coming from this sense of identity. We see this when John says that those who did believe Jesus from among the rulers would not openly acknowledge their faith in him for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. Their identity as part of the ruling elite and their identity as people who could go into the synagogue and, and communicate with others and you know, influence people was so important to them that they refused to confess their belief in Jesus because they didn't want to be identified with him, knowing that that would risk threatening their identity as people in that Jewish community. They feared the social consequences of that faith, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. The thing is, we know that their fear of being cast out is justified when we looked at John 9 a long time ago, which is the story of the blind man being healed. He confesses his faith in Jesus and he is excommunicated from the synagogue. So this isn't some like unreasonable fear that they have. It's a justified fear of a, a big social consequence. That social stigmatization for their faith in Jesus was real and the reality is that for a lot of us we know that this is still the case in some spaces. For us we do face some sort of stigmatisation if we do openly confess our faith in Jesus. And in fact uh, last week Patrick was preaching and the week before Peter was and both of them in their sermons said that they struggle sometimes to confess their faith in Jesus and they're both Anglican ministers. It's not an uncommon experience for us to find it hard to identify ourselves as Christian. And so I think it's good for us to be asking ourselves, what am I willing to identify with? Do I share particular political beliefs or do I speak about my occupation proudly? Am I particularly patriotic? Does everyone know that I'm a vegetarian? Do I openly identify with a particular gender or sexuality? And do I publicly identify as part of the church, as a Christian, as someone who follows Jesus' words because they believe that they are the way to life. 
What do you identify with? And are you willing to identify publicly as a follower of Jesus? Because that is a socially difficult choice to make, to seek God's praise before the praise of other people. And this is the question that John wants us to consider from this passage today. John, we see using this language of glory, but the same word for glory and for praise is the same word in Greek is used to translate. So you can talk about glory, which is not language we tend to use very much, but praise makes sense to us. And it's the same idea that's there in the passage. Whose glory do we seek? Whose praise do we seek in life? Well, it's worth noting that in this passage, John suggests that there are different ways of believing in Jesus. So it's possible, John says, to believe in Jesus and to keep it to ourselves. It's possible to identify as Christian without being public about it. It is possible. But I think what John wants us to understand is that this kind of belief in Jesus, this passive belief, is not the kind of belief that is going to move us out of darkness and into light. And that imagery of darkness and light is imagery that John has used a lot in his gospel. And it's imagery that we recognise and we understand pretty easily. It's not unfamiliar to us that the dark side is set up as the bad side and the light side is the good side. So when in verse 46, Jesus says that he has come as a light in the world so that no one who believes in him should stay in darkness, it's easy to understand what Jesus is saying. If we want to move from darkness into light, we are to follow Jesus. And in particular, we are to follow Jesus in loving God's glory, not people's glory. This is the contrast that John is setting up in this passage. And so then we get to ask ourselves the question, well, what does God's glory look like? And this is where the passage does get particularly tricky because when we look at the way that John describes God's glory, it is a difficult word to accept. Patrick mentioned when I was preaching last Sunday that when Jesus said his hour had come to be glorified, Jesus was speaking about his death and resurrection. And then in the passage today, John quotes from the beginning of Isaiah 53. And this is a prophecy about God's Messiah. And so in Isaiah, he's prophesying, saying that there's going to be a Messiah who comes to return Israel to their former glory. And the Messiah in Isaiah 53 is known as the suffering servant because it says that he will be despised and rejected by mankind. He will be pierced for transgressions, crushed for iniquities. He will experience oppression and judgment, and he will be assigned a grave with the wicked, even though he has done no violence nor spoken any deceit. This is what God's glory looks like. Social rejection, suffering, death. Who would want to be associated with that kind of glory? And yet here, at the end of John chapter 12, John is saying that those who truly believe in Jesus won't just hear God's word or hear Jesus' word, but will value his word so much that they are going to follow Jesus into this type of glory. So this is a hard word to accept. And it is the difficulty of this word which is the other reason that John offers for the Jews' disbelief in Jesus. So they're fearful of the social consequence, but they're also struggling with this word. 
So if you look at the passage uh, in verse 39, it says, For this reason they could not believe, because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Now, perhaps the connection I've made between the difficult word and this passage don't make a lot of sense, so I'm going to try and explain it to you. But basically, John has said that Isaiah's prophecy must be fulfilled, and this prophecy speaks about God hardening Israel's hearts. And, I mean, a show of hands, who feels uncomfortable with that idea of God hardening people's hearts? I hope a few of you do. It's not, it's not a very pleasant idea. I don't like it. So this is a difficult word to accept that God could harden someone's heart. And in fact, this is a sort of idea that we come across in the Bible that people often see and then just dismiss God. They say that can't be a good God if he can harden people's hearts against him. Difficult words from God are precisely the way that God hardens people's hearts against him. So what I'm going to suggest is that it's not God's desire or intention that people are hardened against him, but it is the effect of his word. So I'm going to try and explain using an experience that I had a week ago. Uh, I was in a conversation with a friend, a good friend of mine, and she was telling me something that I needed to hear. So she was telling me as my friend that I am a good friend to people because I'd been saying to her, I think I'm a bad friend. I mean, I don't communicate with people very often and I just think I'm a bad friend. And so she was telling me the opposite, that I was a good friend to people. We were in disagreement and her words to me were kind and affirming and objectively true. Like, I could hear what she was saying. The examples that she was giving made me think, well, if she was saying that about someone else, I would accept that as being true. But in the process of her saying those words to me, I could feel myself internally, my attitude towards her hardening. Like, I could feel my resistance in that conversation. And it had nothing to do with her words being nasty. Like, everything she said to me was good and kind, but I was still hardened towards her in that conversation. She wasn't intending to harden me by her words, but it was the effect her words had on me. And I think... You could say in that conversation that she hardened me against her. She did it, not intentionally, but in effect. I'm suggesting that this is what's happening when it says that God hardens people's hearts. Because it also says in Isaiah's prophecy that if people turned to him, God would heal them. God is willing to heal people. But God, through Isaiah, has spoken a hard word to Israel. He has told them that the way that he intends to glorify them is not as they are expecting it. It is not going to be glorification in the way that the world understands glorification. There's not going to be a powerful ruler that comes in and crushes their enemies. This is not the glorification that they've been expecting. And so it is a hard word that God is speaking to them. According to Isaiah, that glorification is going to come through suffering and rejection and death. And this is the same idea that John is speaking in chapter 12. In last week's passage in verse 23, Jesus says the same thing, that his glorification will come through his death and resurrection. And so this claim that Jesus makes, that that's what his glory will look like, and then the claim that we see at the end of this passage today in verses 44 to 50, that he is God's word, that he is the one who perfectly represents God, 
means that accepting Jesus is hard. We can understand that the Jews are struggling to accept that Jesus is representing God because he's asking them to accept a difficult path. And this is something that we are also encouraged to think about and have to accept if we choose to follow Jesus. We might have to follow Jesus into this type of glory because we are told often in the Bible that the way of following Christ involves sacrifice and suffering and potential rejection and maybe even death. And so it is a valid question to ask, why would anyone choose this? The reason we would choose to follow Jesus is because it is not where his glory ends. So if you were to finish reading Isaiah 53, it goes on to say that the suffering servant, though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. God's Messiah will die, but then will see life again and will prosper. Eternal life with God is the end of glory. And similarly, in verse 46, Jesus cries out, I have come into the world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Jesus has come to give people a chance to move out of darkness and into light and into life with God. But this belief which moves us from darkness into light is active, not passive. It seeks God's glory by following where Jesus leads. Well, it's one thing to talk about Jesus as being our leader, but if a UFO landed in the, in the school playground right now and the alien slid out and said, take me to your leader, where would you take them if Jesus is your leader? Of course, it's a dumb question, but it makes us think about what it looks like to try and work out how we point to Jesus as our leader in life. And so my suggestion is that we follow Jesus as our leader by choosing to value his word. And the two ways that I want to say that we can do that are by valuing Jesus as a person and by valuing the Bible. So we know that across history and probably in our community and people around us, we know that many people are willing to accept or to value Jesus as a good ethical teacher, even if they don't believe that he was a son of God, even if they don't believe there is a God. Jesus has value as an ethical teacher, and we know that his ethics, his teaching comes from God's commands. If you look at the Old Testament, you see that in the law it says to love neighbour as yourself, to forgive rather than seeking revenge, to look after the poor and sick, to use your power to help others, not to oppress people, to be generous with your wealth, to treat your spouse with love and respect and faithfulness. These ways of living, which are written in God's laws, are life-giving. And so we can value Jesus by valuing his teaching. But it isn't just about valuing his teaching. It's not about the letter of the law. The big claim of Christianity is that it's only through relationship with Jesus Christ and by accepting that he is the fulfilment of God's law that we can have life and move from darkness into light. 
And so following Jesus, valuing Jesus, means getting to know him as the word made flesh. And this also means being united to him through baptism and by the Holy Spirit and then following wherever he leads. This is one way that we can value Jesus. And this is also why the other way that we can value God's word, value Jesus, is through valuing the scriptures, valuing the Bible, because this is God's written revelation about Jesus Christ. And so if we want to get to know Jesus and to value him and be led by him, then we can value the Bible. The thing is, it's still far easier to locate our identity in the people around us. And we are prone to resist God. This is what sinfulness is. So the question that we uh, then come up against is, can we do anything to prevent our hearts from becoming hard against God? We can see that um, despite belief, the Jews had this tendency to harden towards God. And so is there any way that we can work against this? Is there any way that we can make ourselves receptive to Jesus and uh, keep ourselves open to following him? I think one of the things that's important for us to do is to be willing to name our resistance and name our fears about following God and uh, our fears or, or resistance towards what's in the Bible. It might be that the Bible seems too hard to understand, or it might be that it feels too time-consuming, or it's too hard to align with our sense of justice. The reason I think naming our fears or our resistance is important because it helps us to work out what of those fears can be validated and what we need to find ways to address. So the reality is the Bible is difficult to understand on our own. That is a truth. But it's one of the reasons as well why we do commit to listening to sermons and why we do commit to going to Bible studies and to spending time with other people who help us to understand God's word. Uh, perhaps as well you might have slipped into the habit of thinking about God's word as a task to be done rather than a relationship to have with Jesus and through the Holy Spirit. And so another way that we can try and avoid this hardening of our hearts is by staying in touch with Jesus. And this is something that we can do by making Jesus a priority in our lives, just as we would make any other relationship a priority in our lives. We can talk to Jesus regularly in prayer, which is something that God calls us to do. And we can also learn to listen to Jesus, which perhaps doesn't feel as natural to us, but it is something that we can learn. It's something that we can practice with the help of others. And it is something that we can do because we have the Holy Spirit at work in us. You can also be intentional in finding ways to remind yourself of why you follow Jesus. So um, if you think about social media and all those before and after photos that people post, it might be their weight loss photos or it might be their home renovations or um, the baby photos with the month markers next to them. Or if it's not social media, it might be that you remember the pen marks that your parents put on the door jam to measure your height. Or it might be the corporate reminders like NADOC week or Remembrance Day. It is important for us to remind ourselves of why we follow Jesus so that we remember what life was like before him. And so this is one of the reasons that we commit to coming to church every week and that we use liturgy in the service booklets and that we take communion. These are things that help us to remember Jesus' value to us. And so keep doing this because ultimately the way that we stay soft towards God and God's word is by persevering with it.
I was listening to a TED talk, a podcast last week, and uh, it said that grit is more important than IQ when it comes to succeeding in life. And they were using the word grit basically to mean perseverance. So perseverance is more important than intelligence when it comes to success. And this is the same, I think, when it comes to our faith and to remain open towards God. Persevering for us probably means making God's word part of our daily routine. And this doesn't have to be a boring thing. I think we can sometimes feel like it becomes a bit too regular. But in the same way that we make exercise or eating or earning money part of our daily routine, we can make God's word part of our routine as well. And so maybe some days you'll choose to read from a particular book and then other days you might listen to podcasts and uh, other days you might meditate on scripture or uh, meet with someone to discuss the Bible, to pray with them. You might go to community group other days. You might do some voluntary community service some days and you might serve at church on a Sunday. And in all of these ways and obviously in many other ways, we can make God's word part of our routine and persevere in it so that we do stay open towards it. And our incentive to do this is because God's word is eternal life. It's not just telling us about it, but it's our relationship with Jesus as God's word and our following of God's good laws, which give life to us and to the people around us. And so even though Walking with Jesus and seeking God's glory might have suffering and, and rejection attached to it. It also is the way that we come into the light and into new life. And so to finish, I want to invite you to stand with me. Um, I was looking at Psalm 119 and it's a very long psalm, but we're just going to read a section of it together. And the beauty of it is that it's a reminder to us that thousands of years ago, other people also recognised how important God's word was and saw its ability to lead us into the light. So in your booklets, after where it says sermon on page four, you'll see I've put um, Psalm 119 verses 105 to 112 in there. And so um, I'm going to invite you to say those with me. So let's say this together. Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. I have taken an oath and confirmed it that I will follow your righteous laws. I have suffered much. Preserve my life, Lord, according to your word. Accept, Lord, the willing praise of my mouth and teach me your laws. Though I constantly take my life in my hands, I will not forget your law. The wicked have set a snare for me, but I have not strayed from your precepts. Your statutes are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. My heart is set on keeping your decrees to the very end. Amen.